hello and welcome to Cursed Objects. I'm Dan Hancocks. And I'm Dr. Kasha T. And we will be taking you through the annals of history, getting drunk in the gift shop <laughs> with Clee's Angel of History. As very usual. much, very much in this episode, I think, as well. Yeah, because what we're talking about today is, it's kind of like the the ur-cursed object. It's like the foundation stone, in a way, mm. of modern cursed objects. It's an object so obviously cursed that I suspect it will induce groans from a lot of people just like it induces <laughs> groans when we see it out in the wild, which we all do all the time. I think it's also something a lot of people don't know the full story of, and which actually, because it is simultaneously so grotesque and so overfamiliar, that it often escapes serious critical analysis. So yeah. uh, it's kind of like one of those things that's just a point of derision, isn't yeah, it? Like completely. just widely a point of derision for a lot of people. hundred percent. So but please don't deride us and join us on this on this journey. <laughs> buckle in, buckle up. Um, yeah, we're gathered here today to discuss a very 21st century icon, but it doesn't look like a 21st century one. In fact, it's masquerading as a 20th century icon. I'm talking, of course, about the remarkable story of Keep Calm and Carry On, the white on red poster, the words in all caps, underneath a royal British crown. And before it was a baby grow or a pencil sharpener, it was a poster <laughs> uh, commissioned by the Ministry of Information in 1939, in expectation of the aerial bombing of the Luftwaffe. Two and a half million copies of the poster were printed. It was actually part of a set of three posters. The other two read, well, the first one was, Freedom is in peril, defend it with all your might. Quite an injunction, that one. And the other one was, Your courage, your cheerfulness, your resolution will bring us victory. Stunning. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's sort of like a... It's kind of Instagram motivational mm, picture over a yeah. sunset kind of yeah, vibe, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, really, um, really strong. Which just goes to show that there's nothing new under the sun, and you know, <laughs> this stuff, this, or under the sunset, indeed, this stuff's always been around. Part of the reason that I think the keep calm and carry on, the by far the way the most famous of the three, is is cursed, is because it sort of floats around the decades. It's kind of a phantom. And it's uh, got this temporally messy story that we're going to go into over the over the next uh, hour, mm-hmm. um, which dis- it kind of disturbs our sense of what the zeitgeist of a particular age is because of this confusing sort of placement on on various timelines. Um, there's one book that delves into the history of Keep Calm and Carry On in, in great detail, which I highly recommend, which is Owen Hatherley's Ministry of Nostalgia. And in that book, he sort of describes it as speaking to like a, a kind of long mid-century kind of 19th from maybe 1930s to the late 1970s with the advent of neoliberalism and that that mid-century period is a period of sort of patrician bureaucratic top-down britishness uh, where we have a deferent class stratified society a nation that talks in bbc english or at least an official nation that talks in bbc (laughs) english where the radio means the home service Mm mm-hmm where the state was mother and father and nanny all at the same time, for better and for worse. And then in the aftermath of the global financial crisis in 2008, this uh, sort of nanny statism and austerity nostalgia was rekindled and and, and sort of had a, a second wave. A uh, renaissance. A renaissance, indeed, mm. exactly. And you saw that in TV and sort of things like Jamie's Ministry of Food. Um, but across popular culture and these sort of endless stocking filler books about World War II and, you know, the popification of everything, this sort of all ties, ties in and we're going to go into that later. But this is a period in which the reality in Britain were, where it was uh, that sort of food banks were suddenly flourishing alongside 
a weird kind of hipster fetishization of rockabilly turnips and mutton chops, poodle skirts, 1940s pilot moustaches, ludicrously expensive delicatessens which sold provisions and comestibles out of jars and wicker baskets. And Brits were suddenly being instructed by conservative politicians that they must tighten their waist belts, make do and mend, read a reissued copy of Miss Beaton's book of household management. Britain, we were told, in a sort of pervasive fiction perpetuated by the Tories, unchallenged by Labour, had maxed out its credit card and it was time for austerity. Can I just say the weird thing about that is, as well, during this period, there was a real boom in um, kind of events that were Second World War themed, almost like blitz discos, they were called. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of like, don't get too drunk if you're flying your Spitfire home. And there was like this really strong... No, 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 I'm not joking at all. There's this really strong culture, this kind of strong aesthetic that Mm. was associated with that. No, I've got this recollection. I think I was on a stag do, bear with me. I was on a stag do, not at a blitz disco, but in Rye in on the south coast mm-hmm. uh and we had just got off at the train station and there was exactly one of these sort of well this was about 2011 so perfect mm-hmm. perfect timing for this sort of moment of keep cam- calm and carry on austerity nostalgia where you had people in the sort of uh camo sort mm-hmm. of you know that very itchy <laughs> sort of <Yeah>. scratchy <laughs> uh world war ii uniforms and yeah women in poodle skirts selling like tins of biscuits and, mm. and jams and preserves and stuff and it you know we all rolled our eyes but i don't remember seeing that when i was growing up and mm. i haven't seen it recently it really does i think it does, does speak to this very specific period that i my timeline, I think, is 2008 to 2015, but we can we could argue about that maybe. But here's the th- key thing about this poster, this kind of real totem to the to World War II blitz spirit that everybody understands as um, an icon of World War II British identity during the war of our finest hour. It's like an M. Night Shyamalan plot twist. It's a big reveal that I think loads of people don't know, and that's that. This poster, two and a half million copies were printed of it, preparing for a successful Nazi invasion of Britain, the worst possible um, case scenario. It was never displayed. It was never It was never put on show. Nobody fucking saw it. A few designers in the Ministry of Information, you know, sort of had it had it bandying around sort of in a basement. But it was never displayed. It was never even sort of put on, on a, a bus shelter or anything. The story of how it became this global icon mm. against all the odds begins in a bookshop, a second-hand bookshop in Annick in Northumberland in the year 2000. That's actually in a way it's year zero bizarrely and the uh the owners had bought like a job lot of second-hand books and in this box of like dusty books they found one of the very very few remaining original copies of a poster that nobody bloody knew anymore like no one no one was aware and the owners liked it they framed it and put it up in their bookshop which is quite a sort of famous second-hand bookshop up in this small town in northumberland and people asked if they could buy a print they started producing prints and Basically, the the poster success snowballed in the sort of late 2000s, particularly after it featured in a Sunday supplement Christmas gift guide, oh 2005, yeah, yeah. Uh, which you can totally see, right? Like, yeah. like oh, a bit of a bit of kitsch for the... Uh... Along with, like, the coffee machines that you can't afford, yeah. and, like, all the yes. other things that you can't afford. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> Buy this only £375, yeah. but it is very sexy, you know. <laughs> So yeah, as we all know, like after 2005, because, you know, we can't 
avoid the bloody thing, a, a keep calm consumer apocalypse followed in the late 2000s and 2010s. And that coincided perfectly with the onset of the global recession that, that mm-hmm. followed the 2008 global financial crash. And in fact, Gordon Brown, when he was prime minister in 2009, ordered a copy of the poster and hung it on the wall in Downing Street, which I think is a wonderful, Christ alive. wonderful detail because mm. this is the exact moment he's bailing out the banks and that, you know, the, selling the, off the gold. <laughs> exactly. Essentially, yeah. And here's this, here he is as well as this sort of like, you know, stoic, but sort of sad, mournful kind of naval <laughs> captain going down with his ship, essentially. With it, you know, the ship. That image is stunning. It's too much. It's really good. It? Yeah. But yeah. So yeah, the, the, the sort of, the absence of the poster from the home front in World War II, I think, mm. makes the story of this poster, of, of this meme, substantially more complex. Because here we have essentially a perfect example of, to me anyway, like the construction of historical memory after the fact mm-hmm. uh, for explicitly political purposes in a lot of cases. Mm-hmm. You know, the subduing of kind of resistance to austerity, to to cuts that would sweep the country um, mm. and that would ru- ruin kind of so much of our kind of social infrastructure and, and the welfare state that had been created in the aftermath of World War II. Because Go even on. that language of like austerity was so heavily rooted in the... in, in in the Second World War. The word austerity, it is literally related to the period of austerity after mm. the Second World War. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But like, I had absolutely no idea of that when the financial crash was happening because yeah. I wasn't a war historian at that point. Sure. So I was kind of like, all oh, right, yeah, it's just austerity. No, no real <laughs> critical engagement of why that word was used at all, really. It didn't chime with me. I was, yeah. you know, I... I'm not from the generation where it would make any sense. Of course. And but then suddenly it's like everywhere and I'm narrativizing my experience through the idea of austerity. Mm-hmm. And it is literally like a harking back to particular periods. So it's like, pull up, you know, pull up your bootstraps. Is that the, where, where, is that the phrase? Am I mixing my... Do up your tie and sing the national anthem. <laughs> it's a different, different leadership, isn't it? But yeah. Yeah, yeah. exactly. It's sort of, it's really culture studies 101 in a way, isn't mm. it? That like, while you've got this incredibly ideologically driven kind of government program that begins in 2010 and deepens throughout the 2010s under the Conservatives and, and the Lib Dems for a bit as well, that you have an atmosphere of, outside of official politics, outside of capital P politics, mm. that um, that tells you, look, you're just going to have to make do. Uh, and also, mm. I mean, one of the one of the sort of, hated but pervasive catchphrases of the conservative government under Cameron was you know we're all in it together oh god and yeah. and, and so you know the the invocation of blit, the blitz spirit through this seemingly innocuous poster mm. um we'll go into the blitz spirit a bit later mm. i think but uh was 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 just so apposite and jeremy gilbert pointed out in this uh, an essay at the time in 2011 there's this irony that we were kind of beginning to live in an age that prized emotional literacy over reticence and calm resolve that we were beginning to it was you know becoming prized that we could talk about our feelings yeah and yet this poster quote condenses and expresses perfectly the parameters of the affective regime of life under neoliberalism and affective is a word that gets thrown around in academia a lot and it took me a while to get the sense of what that meant but we're talking mm. about feelings there mm. basically so um it's about what what jeremy gilbert calls quote sharing the pain you yeah, know, like we're, sure. we've all maxed out the credit, Britain's credit card, which is like economically speaking bollocks. Mm, mm. Um, and so we all have to collectively muck in and suffer. Yeah. Here. You know, the material features of the periods that we're talking about 2008, 2015, the peak of keep calm and carry on mania 
mm-hmm. are like an explosion of precarious jobs and zero hours contracts. You know, um, my friend told me that academic jobs have never recovered, like permanent staff numbers have mm. never recovered since the recession, since 2008, yeah. basically. And that, you know, was presented as a series of temporary measures and mm-hmm. changes that were needed, you know, to deal with, with massive cuts that mm. came from, or sensibly from central government. They have lo- become like permanent but, fixtures of the, right. of the political landscape, Absolutely, right? and the social landscape. As well, so like mm. food banks is exactly a, yeah. a, the same. Like they are designed to deal with temporary poverty and temporary like shortfalls in a household's cash flow. Yeah, right. Um, where if the benefit system is not as it obviously isn't providing the support that it's supposed to. Yeah, they are supposed to be temporary measures. Mm. They are not temporary measures, and the number of food banks continues to grow yeah. as it has done every year, basically since two thousand and ten. Meanwhile, we've got closed libraries, parks, youth centres you know mm-hmm. like the social fabric of the nation began to be dismantled in 2010 but mm. we've got to keep calm and carry on there was a bbc article at the from around this time as well that i managed to find about the story of the poster um, and there's one really telling line at the end which to me underpins how ideological this is and how the bbc plays a part in that ideology mm-hmm. as well as the as the national broadcast there's, the article ends with the sentence Thanks to a chance discovery in a dusty box of books, the soothing entreaty is finally having its intended effect, bringing comfort to a nation in turmoil. Oh, dear. <laughs> and to me, that's really just like a, a appalling reading of history from a patrician-like national broadcaster that was established in the first place to do exactly that. Mm. To inform the public, sure, and entertain mm. the public. But actually, I think entertain came later as part of their mission statement. Mm. Ultimately, it was you know, designed to induce quietism and help people get on with their daily lives in such a way that they didn't contest what was being handed down from Mm. government, however fucking awful that was. But yeah, don't worry, because here's this soothing entreaty to keep calm and carry on. So we talked a bit about like the context that this poster exploded Mm. into popular consciousness and how its history is a false, a false one. I think it's worth a little bit of fun to just go through <laughs> some of the iterations that are we available. We can have fun. <laughs> we can have fun with history. History's um, not fun. What are you talking about? <laughs> I mean, people will know this because they these things are unavoidable, these permutations, yeah, these memes. they live in the world. <laughs> because if you live in the world, you can't... I mean, I have mm. seen... Um, I'd love to know, actually, if you're listening to this and you've seen a weird or even just a bog-standard version of the Keep Calm and Carry On poster in another country. I'd love to hear about that particularly. I think I'm pretty sure I've I've seen outside like a cafe in Spain, like keep calm and drink coffee. You know, it's sort of it's part of the sort of way that English becomes this sort of fun lingua franca. And perhaps British culture is a touchstone for, for mm. a lot of countries that are not Britain as well. It's like a twee Englishness, it's a twee, isn't it? Or yeah, British, yeah, yeah. Well, it's a twee Englishness, I think. But you could argue it's a twee Britishness yeah, more yeah, generally. Yeah. yeah, we must hear from the Scottish and Welsh twee. And what yeah. They think of this. Do they disavow it? Or is, it, is this part of their culture as well? How do you feel about regional twee? <laughs> Should twee be devolved? Get in touch. Please hit us up on the socials. Um, so yeah, the merchandise like exploded in popularity mm. and, and it became like a very early, I think, example of just like... A, a meme that could be adapted for infinite kind of ends but um but it also became commodified first you could buy this quite 
I think it was quite classy to begin with to have this poster. Like, I definitely remember one person I knew had it in around 2008, nine, and it's like, yeah. Like cool. a little bit chic, a little yeah. bit kind of tongue in cheek, a little bit yeah. nostalgic, a nice mm. kind of war aesthetic. Absolutely. Mm. And, and how. How quickly that descended into like the, the most grotesque kind of kitsch. Um, so you can buy Keep Calm and Carry On merchandise in t-shirts, in the form of t-shirts, pencil cases, mugs, Baby Grows mobile phone cases. Condoms was a fun one I managed to find. Excellent, yeah. Um, cushion covers, tote bags, and obviously now masks as well. Oh, of course. I haven't yeah. seen anyone wearing them, but but you know. Anything you can make, you can put on any of those sort of items. And I think perhaps in some future episode, we should talk about what I've been calling in my head the red bubbleification of merchandise. The fact that you can sort of take anything and put it on anything and then print it. And there are companies that will do this yeah, for yeah, you yeah. at a price instantaneously now. But yeah, one of my favourite objects in this basically infinite range is, <laughs> is a Keep Calm and Carry On first aid kit. Because that <laughs> transgresses this sort of line of like ironic use into mm. the world of actual an actual like functional relationship with pain yeah um, <laughs> just yeah. Um, which i guess maybe arguably the coronavirus masks do as well yeah for like sure. rather than it just being a funny thing on a t-shirt yeah. like it's you know it's actually it's got a functional use that pertains to so, a situation where someone might panic so where someone might freak out where someone might be ne- actually need to keep fucking calm um <laughs> some of the permutations of the slogan that i found online are and, and people will recognise a lot of these. A lot of examples where it's just like, keep calm and do a thing that you would, you enjoy doing. So like, keep yeah. calm and read books. Keep calm and eat cupcakes. Keep calm and drink beer or tea or Prosecco yeah. or gin. Uh, keep calm and watch Friends. <laughs> was one that I saw. don't know why anybody would sort of need to have that particular mindset while they watch Friends. It's got this kind of like, the humour attached. Sorry to go back to that yeah. first day kit. The humour attached to it is a little bit, have I got news for you? kind of vibe do you know what I mean that kind of like oh yeah that is funny I am gonna keep calm and no I feel bad for mocking it but it is no 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 it's fine like it it is silly it's kind of pure boomer meme territory actually it's it's pure boomer meme territory Facebook boomer meme yeah 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 100% and on that note like one that really tweet something in deep in my memory was the and I've I'm sure I've seen this like on someone's t-shirt or something before is keep calm and go shopping and that the thing that it tweaked in my memory was an issue of Adbusters magazine which I can no longer find from 2001 after the 9-11 after the World Trade Center attacks which referred to like one of George W. Bush's first speeches as president after 9-11 he told people to go shopping (laughs) He said, get down to, he said, go down to Florida and get down to Disney World, go Mm. out there and go shopping, get out there and live your life. And it caused, you know, shock at the sort of distaste of it at the time Mm. in the American and the British press. But it's obviously a very hyper, it's a very capitalist response to a historic terrorist attack, isn't it? Is, Is to sort of say, we must not let them disturb our way of life and what is our way of life is shopping essentially yeah yeah. and i and so that resonance i I thought was quite interesting there's some interesting military permutations to the poster you can have keep calm and join the army keep calm i'm a soldier keep calm and bomb syria or (laughs) if you prefer keep calm and don't bomb syria is also an (laughs) Mm. option just for balance just for balance i can imagine both of them being on the bbc just for balance (laughs) the two posters (laughs) yeah just for balance sitting either side of like john humphreys yeah having an argument there's then the uh the final set i'm going to tell you about is the ones that 
reject the idea of keeping calm and they include things like i can't keep calm i'm italian so someone's tried to like <laughs> yeah. twist it for their own sort of national myth yeah, like uh, or, or myth of their national character. I can't keep calm. I'm only two. I mean, actually, even I thought that was a bit Aww. cute, maybe. I will not keep calm and you can fuck off, which doesn't, <laughs> which rejects the sort of lexical mm. structure of the original by having far too many words. Not cool, man. Um, and yeah, now panic and freak out is another popular one, which I have some small modicum of respect for as utterly tiresome as these memes all are like you know i kind of i respect the fact that someone's like basically saying no to this injunction it's hard to measure just how all pervasive this phrase now is but i did did type in the phrase keep calm and carry on to spotify podcasts right. just to see what our competition was yeah uh there aren't any about this poster but there is an entire new podcast series that started this year called keep calm and carry on investing <laughs> which encourages you to, quote, withstand all the noise and distractions and focus on long-term investing in capital market practices. <laughs> oh, God, that's horrendous. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So now I've made you all sick. Um, <laughs> I can think, move on. <laughs> I think the thing that, for me, is the weirdest thing about Keep Calm and Carry On is you kind of mentioned earlier, it's like, disjointed it's like temporal disjointedness Mm. so I think one of the things that's so strange is that I imagine seeing keep calm and carry on in like museum gift shops that like I went to a lot as a kid in the 90s because well basically because I've got two older brothers and we just weren't allowed anywhere else War museums, these kind of heritage sites are some of the only places because objects of war are so large, like Mm. aeroplanes are so large, that they're actually a place that you can really run around and there aren't the same kind of rules that there are in other spaces. So, like, we could never go into art galleries. Like, what are we going to do in art galleries? So this is how you fell in love with museums? Oh, my God, yeah. This is exactly it. I spent so much time just running around with them and you kind of would imagine that these aeroplanes that are static in the museum were actually like flying overhead Mm. and there's this really visceral sense of like the smell of like mud and metal and this like mustard gas kind of smell war museums are always kind of musty they don't have fake mustard gas in the honestly honestly, so they did i mean you you did your phd there just to be clear right so quite a lot of actually a feature of quite a lot of museums and heritage sites from the 1990s was this experience thing where they encourage you to experience what the war mm. was like. I think I know the kind of thing you mean. There's there's something like it in the Museum of London Docklands today, in fact, which, yeah. which sort of, you, you can go and sit in an air raid shelter and yeah, like the, exactly. the noise. And, I mean, I think any kid that ever has ever been to the Jorvik Viking Centre exactly remembers that. one thing, yeah. which is the smell. Yeah, which yeah, is, yeah. Which is, uh, t- lasts with me from the age of like seven, basically, because the smell yeah. is so horrible. It's supposed to recreate, like, this is what a medieval peasant village smelt like. I, like, ranked. Yeah, basically. I actually mm. developed fear of mannequins, <laughs> like, growing up. <laughs> That's because, a real phobia. Like, honestly, I was terrified. Like, I'm fine with the ones in shops. Okay. Like, I, I really don't encourage, like, I don't really engage with them that much, but I was so terrified growing up because they just looked awful like what do you what are you talking about here the, the mannequins in a war museum in that, war museum dressed up in like fatigues yeah like they okay. all look like you know they're all bleeding they've all got bandages on right. they're all or they're like nazis 
or they've sure. got these like cold dead eyes and you're like i yeah. think you're supposed to be the good one but you don't really look like the who good could one. Say. who could say really and there was this about i mean this was about sort of a turn in the telling of that of our history that tried to bring it to life more is that ironically given how dead the eyes were as you're saying yeah, but, yeah, but, it did. but trying to make it more than just sort of you know the cliche of like here are some objects behind glass yeah so mannequins particularly but like also like recreate recreated experiences are not anything new there were lots of living museums in kind of like the scandinavian countries which okay. are these kind of like, like you go and, yeah you kind of go and experience how the folk of the region sure. live and also mannequins are actually like a victorian development specifically where there was something kind of like weird about the ways in which they were trying to recreate human life in this kind of mannequin figure. So you start seeing them in shop fronts. So there's actually a lot of like, there's actually a lot of like moral panics about mannequins sorry, in, where? in the Victorian period. In the Victorian period, because wow. they're kind of like, this is weird. You look like a human. And especially these, are they called automatons? These kind of like machines that mimic human movements wow. so there was like a bit of a moral panic because it was like you almost like you know that spider-man meme where there's a spider-man pointing at a spider-man pointing at a spider-man <laughs> yes it was kind of like that who, but who the, is real anyway yeah yeah because they the the entire objective of these sites was kind of encouraging a new engagement with the past okay and through that new engagement they tried to like really take visitors back in time so it's yeah. like you can walk through these streets and do yeah, this thing yeah. So the Blitz experience in the Imperial War Museum is probably the main one that springs to mind. Mm -hmm. But also there was this kind of Britain at war experience in London Bridge that did a similar thing to kind of recreate an imagined past of what the Blitz was like so that visitors could go back in time. An immersive theatre experience type. Uh, yeah, is that, is yeah, that like one of, of those things. things about? Yeah. Basically, I'm just going to really briefly describe what the Blitz experience was like. The experience lasted a little under eight minutes, and visitors entered into a recreated mock air raid shelter and were welcomed on an audio track by the character of Old George, this air raid protection warden for an East End district. Old George was joined by a range of supporting characters, including his daughter, Val, her son, and other, like, typical East End characters, and oh, some wow. of whom were actually voiced by East Enders actors, like, from oh, the soap East Enders. Beautiful. And then after the scene, like, after, like, setting the scene, an air raid siren would go off, and the sounds of bombs would begin falling, and a near miss would make the bench in the shelter, like, shake. And finally, there was the sound of the all clear, and visitors would be led outside, obviously not outside, inside, into a mm. recreated street that had now been reduced to rubble. Oh, wow. And the smell of smoke would fill the air. You could hear screams on the audio track, and uh, visitors were told that old George's house had been destroyed. And after much like audible anguish, followed by a timely reminder from the women's voluntary service character to have a cup of tea, wow. to which I think it's George's daughter who says, if she offers me a cup of tea one more time, I'll ram it down her throat. And this kind of like nice touch of like class antagonism. <laughs> and then visitors were told that luckily a shelter had been found for George's family. So, you know, no real mm. harm done there. Followed by a chorus of the Cockney favourite, roll out the barrel. <laughs> sure, they can't, they can't go five minutes without Yeah, they it. love it. They love it. And then after which, like visitors, like as they left the experience, were like told to remember us, won't you? Kind of in this wow. oh, God, really that's, kind of emotional... Oh, that's, that's, quite, that's quite a lot, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it was staggeringly popular with the public. So like right. the museum had to like invest in um, these kind of like ropes for like queuing, something it yeah. never really had to do before. Sure. It never had to think about queuing. 
Because yeah. no one was really like rushing to go and see the Spitfire or it whatever. Was so popular. So popular. They really had to think about it. Is this sort of that. in the 90s you're talking about? Yeah. Absolutely new. Yeah, yeah 100%. Yeah. Actually, there's this like really sweet, I found this audio recording of a young BBC journalist. And she's like interviewing people who like go through the experience. So she interviews two elderly people. And the two elderly people interviewed remark that it was very like it happened at the time and that it brought back memories great memories wow so in some adults this exhibition kind of acted as this aid to their memory although yeah. it's like it kind of constructed a particular memory for them that was like oh yeah you know it's kind of scary but also great there is this memories. great memories this strong resilience it reminds me actually that um guy fawkes night 2009 or 2010 can't work out if it would have been the anniversary of 1939 mm. or the mm. or the the 75th anniversary of 1945 mm. but it was some it was a significant world war ii anniversary and i was at guy fawkes night bear with me in in victoria <laughs> park and they prior to the fireworks display uh, you know massive fireworks display in a massive london park thousands of people have paid to come and sort of you know see this huge fireworks display which is its own act of commemoration and they start playing Vera Lynn. They yeah. point. They point. Um, I'm not surprised. They point searchlights at the sky and announce that the theme for this year's fireworks. And I would have thought there was a theme, and that theme is Guy Fawkes Night. But fine. Uh, the theme for this year's fireworks is the Blitz. And this was honestly so fucking unsettling. And the conversation amongst me and my friends very quickly turned to the fact that. We were doing a bit of mental arithmetic and we were like, it is plausible, Mm -hmm. as much as Hackney has been gentrified to fuck, it's plausible that there is some old age pensioner who was living in Hackney or indeed London generally during Mm. the Blitz. Yeah. Who can hear Vera Lynn being played out at top volume and see these searchlights. Oh, no, sorry. They were playing air raid sirens as well. It was really disturbing. Yeah, Completely unnecessary. But the intention was clearly like we must pay tribute to our finest hour. And our finest hour is not D-Day. Our finest hour is is the Blitz. She also kind of interviewed some children that went through and uh, they had like really different reasons for thinking it was great. So uh, (laughs) one of them was like, when they dropped the bombs at the end at the very last minute and the bench shook, that was the good bit. Their response is clearly because they're like engaging with this thrilling aspect of of the Blitz. They're kind of playing with it. It's like a ride. It's, you know, yeah, the kind of inappropriate candour of children is always quite revealing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. One thing I find really, really interesting and is that it kind of idealizes this east london east ender cockney community that like specifically in east london had moved out so it wasn't in canary wharf anymore because that was now like a kind of financial hub yeah. but also a lot of the east end had changed really quickly with like post-war migration so a lot of the people that were in the east end particularly by the 1990s mm. weren't necessarily these traditional cockneys so it ties into the wider debates around heritage that are like, okay, so the community is not there anymore, but what we're going to do is we're going to put up this little heritage site that idealizes a particular past mm. so that people can experience it. Yeah, yeah. And think about, oh, yeah, you know, this is like working class identity. And it's basically singing roll out the barrel. The 1980s saw a substantial growth in museums and heritage sites. So by the mid-1960s, there were 900 museums, and this figure rose to 2,500 in the late 1980s, which is a significant increase in museums and heritage sites. And it prompted commentators, 
at the time to claim that they were opening at the rate of one every fortnight. Mm. So a really, really like intense increase in like the ways in which like specifically like the past was packaged for the nation, especially during like what was some really brutal uh, economic cuts and changes under the under Margaret Thatcher's project where Mm. she completely wanted to change the face of British society and British Mm -hmm. culture right completely Um, remaking human souls yeah exactly exactly like you know trying to win over not win over hearts and minds but like change the hearts and minds of the nation which was her kind of like mission statement yeah yeah um, so much of the public appetite during this time was like a need for a sense of like experiencing the past as it would have been, as in like the Jorvik Yor- Viking Center or Ironbridge Gorge, which is kind of another kind mm. of part of this ilk of experiences. And the speedy increase in these heritage centers prompted some serious worry, especially within this kind of new emerging cultural studies kind of 101 thing that we're kind of talking about mm. here. So critics particularly pointed out in the areas in which heritage sites were kind of springing up, for example, the Wigan Pier Heritage Centre represented a kind of idealised working class communities of the past, whilst the real collieries and industries outside of the centre walls were being absolutely decimated oh by God. Margaret Thatcher. So you, so you sort of have... Oh, wow. So it was like ruining working class communities in the present, but then mm. like, oh, don't worry, because a heritage centre will just pop up and you can pop, you can like walk around and as someone dressed up as like a wench or whatever, and you can be like, oh, right, yeah, authentic working class communities. I mean, I mean it's also, you know, it feels like what you're describing there is sort of the Thatcher government's kind of complicity in the consigning of a particular way of life yeah. and, and the kind of reason for being for whole communities yeah. into the historical realm yeah. in an incredibly on the fucking nose way. So like, like this, this, the way that you live, it's a museum. Yeah, now. yeah, yeah. So like basically, you know, we're closing the pits, but don't worry because... The mining museum. Yeah, the mining museum's here. In an article in The Observer in like the kind of late 80s, there was an article by Neil Asherson called Why Heritage is Right Wing. And in it, I'm just going to quote, where there were mil- miners and mills, now there is Wigan Pier Heritage Centre, where you can pay to crawl through a model coal mine, watch dummies making nails, and be invited in by actors and actresses dressed as 1900 proletarians. Britain, where these days a new museum opens every fortnight, is becoming a museum itself. A mark of a decrepit political system must surely be that a fictitious past of theme parks and costume dramas governs the present. Wow, Britain as a museum. Yeah. I mean, like that. And there's like a lot of this, uh, you know, Patrick Wright wrote on, on Living in an Old Country, which is basically exactly That looks about, sick, I just put that on yeah, my Yeah, it's on amazing. So it's, it's exactly about this kind of worry about the fact that it seems like Britain's becoming this kind of anthropological museum <laughs> to itself. A living museum, yeah, yeah, essentially, yeah. I mean, some of these claims were kind of rightly critiqued at the time for being quite overblown. So a lot of the people that worked in Wigan Pier Heritage Centre would have been from that area. So a lot of yeah. people that worked in these heritage sites were actually from local communities. And particularly Raphael Samuel, who's this like amazing historian, he called all these people heritage baiters because he was like, mm. actually what's happening in some of these instances is the fact that real communities want to have, they want to democratise history. They okay. want to claim a sense of self over their own history. So they want to set up museums or they want to yeah. set up, you know, like reenactments that kind of tell people about what happened in this specific sure. region. Yeah, yeah. So there's this kind of debate that plays out which is like is it more democratic or is it just horribly it's this it's this tension again between politics with a big p like what 
all of Margaret Thatcher's changes are doing to the country mm. and politics with a small p, which is like how do small communities kind of articulate a sense of their past? Yeah, no, no, yeah, no, that's, I, I think that's a really interesting debate and it's one that's pertinent to this day as we, you know, like just move ever further into sort of a post-industrial, post-Fordist mm. um, economy, but one in which, you know, there's still no slavery museum in London. Mm. Um Somebody was just pointing out on my Twitter timeline just this, just today, actually, that a really good bit of uh, investment the government could make for a relatively small outlay of only a few billion <laughs> would be to open a hundred new museums. Somebody just mm. suggested that this morning and was looking at, you know, and, and that points to the fact that there are a lot of experiences, individuals, parts of our history, parts of our multicultural, colonial and post-colonial history that are completely underexplored mm-hmm, for sure. uh, and underdocumented. And if you if you live in Wigan, you know, it's a good thing that mm. that part of your of your kind of of your history is documented properly. Thinking about this keep calm and carry on poster really got me thinking about my childhood and the fact that there was like a significant narrative shift in the way that the Second World War was understood or at least engage with in the public Mm -hmm. in the 1990s. So like I said, there were these like experiences were obviously like kind of fabricated versions of a historical past. Yeah. The Blitz becomes quite a central part of some of these experiences. So like the historian um, Lucy Noakes, who is, by the way, a total sweetheart and also full disclosure is my PhD supervisor. Sure, (laughs) yeah. Noted that um, in the 1990s particularly, there's this kind of really interesting shift in the narratives of the Second World War where the Blitz was kind of fast becoming the central experience of how people made sense of the Mm -hmm. war. So before then, there was still a lot of narratives based on particular battles or particular generals or Mm. veterans experiences Mm. but it was kind of a shift from these to the more kind of like universal like we all could experience the war and what does that show us about about us about national identity in a way I mean that's that's that seems really important to me because it's quite easy to assume because I think I was assuming this Mm. that Museum, you know, when you said sort of there's a heritage explosion in the 80s, mm. the assumption that I probably would have made was just like, well, you know, museums have always been there. They've always been doing the same, broadly the mm. same thing. They might have got a bit cooler mm. and that's it. But it's not. That's not it at all, is it? Like, you know, if you were the historicization of the Second World War in the 60s and 70s in terms mm. of how museumification, mm. completely different. And it's it really it really bears sort of remembering that the way things are now and have been in our sort of sort of adult lifetimes as youngish people speaking mm. for myself like is is not the way it has always been but i think what it does is it really neatly bridges this gap between what i call like i call it the temporal relevance paradigm but really sure. <laughs> what it just classic, means classic crp <laughs> yeah. but really just what it means is that As we um, move away temporally from the Second World War, because time passes, veterans die. So lived experience of the Second World War falls out of public knowledge, particularly, you know, what this tin can would be. People just don't know what it is. It doesn't Mm. have that meaning. But it still occupies a really strong relevance in the ways in which in which Britain conceptualizes a sense of self. So it's still a really important kind of formative cultural memory that people still want to know about, but Mm. they know less about it in their lived experience. Yeah. So it's this kind of 
paradigm and like a lot of industries have to kind of consider how we overcome things like that so one of them is encouraging more emotional effective uh, resonances with the past and mm. ex- and like exhibitions like the blitz experience kind of did specifically that but it really they really tied into a kind of 1990s moment where the second world war was like it was, you know, 50 years ago. So there's a lot of people that have no experience of it, a lot of children that have no experience mm. of it. During the 1990s, there are these like really quite traumatic global conflicts going on. So there is like obviously the genocides that happen in the former Yugos- in former Yugoslavia. There is like the Rwandan genocide. There are wars in like Iraq and Kuwait. So there are all of these kind of global wars that people are really struggling to process how to come to terms with that or narrativize that. And particularly in form- the former Yugoslavia, because it felt for a lot of Europe like, oh, my God, a genocide is happening on our watch again. Mm-hmm. You know, it's happening mm-hmm. on our doorstep again. I think often why the Second World War is used is because it becomes this kind of framework for explaining present conditions that yeah. are hard to articulate. Sure. I guess I have a question about how much the paraphernalia that went along with trying to recreate a real sense of what that history was like. How how did that paraphernalia, or how and when did that paraphernalia begin to leak out of the museum into the wider public realm? Because something like a ration book, something like a World War II you know, cookbook, mm. um, something or a World War One cookbook, or something like one of those small hardback books that's like a, an American serviceman's guide to living in yeah. Britain, yeah. which I think I was given in a like Christmas stocking present yeah. about ten years ago by a you know fairly distant relative. Yeah. Um, when did you know those? Are, those are the sort of things that I think you would expect to see in a you know the Imperial War Museum gift shop, but which really start to just proliferate in all bookshops and in the wider world, seemingly, at a certain point in the last 10 or 20 years. Well, I guess, in a way, I'm kind of, like, the wrong person to ask because I have a really weird relationship with, like, what is essentially tat. Like, I really... I mean, that's why we're doing this podcast, isn't it? (laughs) But, like, particularly, like, so I've got this... um, I've got this little like chopping mat in my kitchen that says, uh, and it's actually like, it is a wall propaganda poster that says Keep like- Keep calm and chop on. No. <laughs> it says eat less bread. And it's like this really wow. strange kind of combination of my like kind of form, like distant formative memories of spending times in like war museum gift shops. Yeah. But also my anxieties over like 25 and not having the metabolism I once had. <laughs> So trying to eat less wow. carbs because of that. that. That's deep. But that was that an instruction that came, that the Ministry of Food gave during the Second World War? You know what? I haven't even really because, thought that much well, about it. Well, there was, nas- there was the national loaf. I, yeah. I, I, I've thought about bread, so mm. don't worry, I've got this. <laughs> I, I, I had to write like a long essay about bread for Prospect magazine a year or so ago. And um, the creation of the national loaf, which was basically like abolished white bread and the national loaf was like wholemeal but not like wholemeal we know it today i can't quite remember what its constituent parts but it was basically like gray brown Mm. and fucking horrible Mm. it wasn't like a lovely loaf of like nice healthy wholemeal bread and it was widely detested and when white (laughs) white bread came back after the war 
everyone was mad, like there's just all these reports of people being just deliriously happy, mm. basically. I can imagine. <laughs> I can imagine. But yeah, it's I wonder where the okay, we'll look into where Eat Less Bread came from and get back to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the things that's interesting about like when did this kind of like start existing in like normal shops is that even as a kid, loads of museums that weren't specifically concerned with the Second World War would mm. also sell this yes. tat. I feel like, like we've seen it in the yeah, Tate Modern yeah, gift yeah, shop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like Hampton Court Palace, here's a pencil with a spitfire on. Like for no reason. <laughs> like for no reason. Because I guess the buyers in those places would yeah. be like, people like this kind of stuff. People right. like yeah, pencils yeah. that say, yeah, remember yeah. the yeah, Second yeah. World War or the First World War or whatever. People like buying things with poppies on. So, sure. you know, even if it's only tenuously linked to some part of our history I mean because you could say the Second World War is related to pretty much any historical site yeah. because that, histi- that historical site existed during that time sure. but the link is t- tenuous t- that's right? tenuous, it's tenuous. <laughs> no no but I'm, I'm speaking yeah. from the point of someone who's probably thinking what are people going to buy in this yeah, gift yeah. shop are um, they going to buy a pencil that no, says that's, that's really telling isn't yeah. it and, and it speaks to the place of World War Two uh, in our national psyche yeah. today for you know generations who didn't experience it, but, mm. but you know for whom it remains important, and that obviously links into the sort of the popification of everything. And don't worry, I'm sure we'll do a poppy related oh, episode at some point. Yeah, but yeah, the the uh, you know the commonly sort of repeated meme at the moment is that the people who are most obsessed with like wearing seventeen poppies are the people who are a, a sort of a generation that were born after it that yeah. are concerned that the generation under them have no fucking respect yeah for, yeah for, for sure whether it's the war dead or it's or it's the nation at large and that's mm. you know let's i think let's be let's be reasonable here and assume that like people wearing poppies obviously have a massive range of subjectivities people who get very angry about you know a news presenter mm. or someone on the news not wearing a mm. poppy on twitter you know it often mm. ends up being some sort of ukipper baby boomer who has not really, who's actually just had everything, you know, demographically speaking, very easy for them yeah. most of their lives. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But I don't know, I guess the thing that's tricky about, not tricky, but one of the things that's interesting about Keep Calm and Carry On is it's obviously got a really big following because it's kind of just a bit of fun, isn't it? Like, it's something that people think is kind of humorous. And You're making the case for it. Well, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, there's obviously a reason why so many people buy it. And I actually yeah. think that my mum bought, like, a kind of twin set of, like, cups that says, like, keep calm and drink tea with, like, a ration book attached. But she bought it for, like, some, like, Polish family. Oh, wow, that's interesting. this kind of, like, twee English in thing. The, in the same way that you might buy... Uh... Like I might buy my half Japanese nephews like a, a double decker bus or something. Yeah, 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 exactly Here is this like that. Avatar of British. Yeah, names. yeah, yeah. But I think what's so interesting about it is I think a lot of Polish people are quite bemused by the fact that like Britain is so obsessed with the Second World War because it really got off so lightly in comparison to both. Yeah, <laughs> like, I mean, and like, yeah, to like think about the Blitz in that way in comparison, and is... to turn it into this sort of quiet twee and yeah. uh, and ironize. Like, I mean, because yeah. I think ultimately it's hard to say sort of what meaning people are putting onto the poster when they buy a t-shirt or buy some mugs or whatever that that you know have a version of the meme on. Mm. But you assume the appeal is the is this sort of I slightly ironized version of of a stoicism. Mm-hmm. And, a, and a resilience 
to something that is obviously so kind of grotesque and unimaginable. Yeah, like, exactly. Like, and, uh, like the, only only the English would do this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think one thing I want to spell out though is, and and I'll do it through this quote from Richard Overy um, from a relatively recent article related to COVID mm-hmm. um, and uh, and the because the invocation of the Blitz spirit it comes all the fucking time, you know. Anytime there's a problem, mm. people will invoke the like conservatives at least will invoke the blitz spirit. And Richard Overy warned against that invocation um, early in 2020. And I think it's worth spelling out that like the response to Nazi air raids was not calm. That London in the Blitz was a place where, as far as I understand it, like murder, rape gang fights like robberies like were, mm. were were all pervasive obviously there were like wonderful acts of heroism and courage and community as well but but people don't keep calm and carry on when these sorts of things happen and That's it's worth that, and it's worth yeah it's really worth saying that like panic and trauma and lasting psychological damage are the real and maybe that's why this poster succeeds as ironic because people understand that but i mm. worry that people don't actually consider what the reality as opposed to the blitz spirit was and i'll Mm. just quote from richard overy so he describes quote in the heavily bombed cities plymouth southampton clydebank tens of thousands of people trekked out of the city into the countryside or neighboring villages for shelter and food their understandable reaction was fear endurance was unavoidable and survival their chief priority exhibiting the quote blitz spirit was not Government research has found that what people wanted most was sound information, the promise of welfare and rehabilitation, and somewhere to sleep. The sight of destroyed buildings, corpses and body parts was utterly alien to daily life. The trauma this produced was largely unrecorded and certainly untreated. The one exception was the city of Hull, where the government sent a team of psychiatrists and psychologists to study why the populations apparently panicked after heavy raiding. The subsequent report, The Mental Stability of Hull, was based on interviews with hundreds of survivors. These case studies showed that people developed serious psychosomatic conditions, including involuntary soiling and wetting, persistent crying, uncontrollable shaking, headaches and chronic dizziness. Men were found to indulge in heavy drinking and smoking after a raid and prone to developing peptic ulcers. One woman was bombed out of three different houses and watched the death of her sister and her five children. Her symptoms indicated an exceptional level of nervous collapse. It's... It's bleak as fuck, but it's worth saying. So I think one of the reasons why the Blitz is so pervasive as a narrative is because it's often framed within this like broad perception of the war as this kind of egalitarian equalising experience Mm -hmm. that people of all classes, genders and races could empathise with. Right, the Queen having tea in in the East End, which may or may not have happened. Yeah, yeah. So (laughs) So like on a basic level, everyone can imagine how distressing your home being destroyed would be. Women and girls especially could engage with this type of war history because instead of a narrative being focused on the war front, mm. it was one that was focused on the home front, which is yeah. largely where they would have been because mm. they weren't excluded from it. But also because the memory of the Blitz in the UK, it's kind of believed that the Blitz lasted for six years rather than it right. actually did, which is nine months. Yeah. It only lasted for nine months. I mean, there are other bombing raids later, but the Blitz yeah. specifically lasted for nine months. It's understood that the Blitz is the war, essentially. Right? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah. also, like, I think it's like, like you were saying, it's important to say 
Um, it's often believed to have been like this huge leveler when actually it disproportionately affected poorer and working class people who right. worked in industrial heartlands because mm-hmm. those are the areas that were being targeted. East London. Yeah, East London to, specifically. To give an example from the city that we're from, but obviously yeah, I'm glad that Richard Overy there has sort of, you know, yeah. explained that there are other cities that were exactly, exactly. Were all, almost destroyed, you know. Um, so I think one thing that's interesting is that, as we've kind of said, Heritage kind of does this thing where it recreates a kind of mythologized past. And so does the Keep Calm and Carry On poster. But what Mm. is kind of interesting about the symmetry of the two is that these kind of heritage experiences, while they were so popular, like the one in the Imperial War Museum lasted for like 26 years in the Mm -hmm. museum. Like by the end, it was super tired. But quite a lot of them kind of faded out in this 20, like 2013, 20, like so... You mean a lot of these sort of immersive yeah, historical yeah, yeah. experiences? Yeah, a lot of them kind of like... So, for example, the the um, immersive experience at London Bridge that was like Britain at War, yeah. that closed in 2007, kind of, and it almost perfectly mm. coincides with the wide popular proliferation of the Keep Calm and Carry On poster. Yeah. So there's this like weird thing about how like one form of engagement with the past is like seen as a bit tired and old now because it's been going on for about 20 years. So what have we replaced it with in that case? We've replaced it with a sort of kitsch memification that's a bit self-helpy as well. Yeah, exactly. Like, like that's, exactly. Um, because that's, that's like more fitting for the time. So we don't want to mm. see like mannequins looking sad. What we want is like a constant. <laughs> we don't. <It's> true. <laughs> we want like a constant reminder. Well, I don't know if we want that. I don't want that. But some people clearly want that. But that's so. You're, so you're saying, yeah, you sort of move from the the sad blitz experience mannequin as a sort of avatar of of uh, how we remember World War Two to then around the late two thousands the keep calm and carry on you know mug and mm. baby grow and first aid care. Yeah. Um, and I feel like that's declined maybe a little bit now in that, like, we are surely, are we not fully fucking over this that poster <laughs> to the point that, like, even the, even people that Speak had... Speak for yourself. <laughs> yeah, sure, sorry. Even people that bought it sort of, you know, have probably somewhat gone off it now. I guess, like, the one thing to say is that in Britain, like, often experiences are narrativized through the Second World War. So when people are talking about COVID, we're talking about being at war, we're talking about the war on drugs, we're talking about relations with Europe as being a war. I mean, I'm not talking about relations with Europe as being a war, but some people <laughs> do talk about it as being a war. In the context of Brexit, yeah, of course. I mean, and yeah, there was the famous sun front page which riffed on the dad's army um did i imagine that there was a there was like a sun brexit front page that riffed on dad's army i think i would 100 percent not put it past them but also this is again another thing because the dad's army theme tune wasn't from the war it was like a pastiche that was like recorded in the 1960s i find that absolutely (laughs) mind-blowing because it's obviously so you know sort of designed to just sound like an authentic piece of 1940s yeah exactly so like a lot of the ways that we think that like oh yeah that's like the war is not the war it's actually reflective of the societies that like create these Mm. kind of representations or um it's it's reflected of like the cultural milieu at the time absolutely i mean i think one trend that we that overlaps with keep calm and carry on thematically but also in terms of the time that it blew Mm. up is the rise of an interest in stoicism which is actually 
an ancient philosophy. And uh, my good friend Hetty O'Brien wrote an excellent essay for The Baffler called entitled Grin and Bear It, which is, you know, essentially a byword for keep calm and carry on anyway as a, as a phrase. On there was this huge rise in like self-help books in the last few years that draw on ancient stoicism as a mm. as a way of kind of inculcating you know uh you know wellness and uh, mm. sort of and, and sort of self help and she she tracked using the google ngram feature which sort of looks at particular use of particular phrases in books over time yeah. she found a, a steep incline in uses of the word stoicism in English language books published between 1980 and and, and now she she said it slowly rises during the premiership of Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan before climbing dramatically after the quote-unquote end of history in 1989 <laughs> uh, and ascending further right up to the present day. The graph is at its lowest point in the post-war decade, interestingly. Mm. We weren't talking about stoicism. Mm. We are talking about rebuilding, mm. you know, yeah. at that point. And as well as, like, countless new or newish kind of stoic self-help book, there's also a daily stoic podcast with... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> with, with the title "Keep Calm and Carry On," which oh, I, what fresh which hell! I, which I found. Um, and so you've got this kind of—I'll just describe. It's quite short. It's got like new agey meditative music, mm. and it begins with the phrase "Things are tough out there," and it goes on to talk about Marcus Aurelius, who was the original Stoic, who also lived through a pandemic apparently several thousand years ago, and. It just really interested me the sort of approach that they were taking because it was it spoke to the same keep calm and carry on mm. during an age of austerity and crisis and indeed a pandemic. And at one point it says, "quote We might not control world events, but we do control how we respond." And it describes the Stoic virtues as self discipline and self control. Question of quote whether we live up to that eternal standard of courage, moderation, justice, and wisdom. I think to me the problem of trumpeting like self discipline and resilience and courage on an individual level is that it denies the possibility of any sort of community collective response. Yeah, for and sure. And it denies the possibility of any structural change that could make your life better. Yeah, you've got to fucking deal with it. Yeah, is what this says, and yeah. it's what keep calm and carry on says. Yeah, and it's what um, it's what the sort of rise in Stoic books also say. It's something that Mark Fisher, the late Mark Fisher, described as the privatisation of stress. Yeah. So, you know, the, the fact that people are having more and more, like, time off work for mental health problems, mm. but are being told to deal with it through a meditation app. Uh, they're t- being told to deal with it through a self-help book. They're being told to deal with it through things that put the onus of responsibility on them. Yeah. And keep calm and carry on puts the onus of responsibility. If you're sad, it's your fault. Yeah. yeah. It puts the onus of responsibility on the person yeah. reading the poster. For sure. Um, For sure. Uh, it doesn't it doesn't suggest that there's any way that the kind of modern equivalent of aerial bombardment, mm, <laughs> you know, mm. the, the things that we cannot change that come from above that make our lives harder that there's no chance that, that that they could be changed at a structural level. They, yeah. That the bombardment will continue and the, the bombing will continue mm. until you change your attitude. And do you know, just as you were talking, it reminded me of the of how um, Sonia Rose, who um, passed away, I think, earlier this year, in her book, she talks about the ways in which um, masculinity during the Second World War was seen as a normative personhood. Mm-hmm. So it meant that it was like the ideal citizen of the nation was male. So wow. a lot of the traits that were seen as 
masculine, like stiff upper lippedness, yeah. were valorized over like what were seen as like female emotional responses. So it almost feels like we're living in this like toxic masculine hellscape <laughs> where <laughs> instead of people being like, and it's hard because we kind of are making so many tracks to start talking about our emotions and talking yeah. about collective feelings and like mm. how like depressed we all are and how stressed we all are. Mm-hmm. And we're having these kind of make, we're making great tracks and then. We're also being told that we need to keep calm and carry on and that we're snowflakes. But actually, a lot of that kind of keep calm and carry on-ness is based in a kind of toxic masculinity. It's based in this Victorian men don't talk about their feelings, Mm -hmm. women are weak because they show emotion. So really, how helpful and conducive is any of that if it's basically just telling you nothing <laughs> other yeah. than be sad or shut yeah. up like yeah can i can i just say be sad and shut up be is, sad is, and is, shut is, up. is yeah. something that we should definitely get printed on a mug yeah. <laughs> um yeah exactly okay. exactly so yeah on the note of be sad and shut up um we just want to thank you for listening thank you um and please go and hit us up on twitter instagram wherever you like and tell people about the podcast uh, also go check out our patreon and give us some money so that we can buy more keep calm and carry on merch mm-hmm.